Alrighty, welcome listeners to episode 74 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here as always with my great friend Sam Etherbell. Hey Sam. Hi Matt. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm I'm excited, if a little bit sheepish, about sharing this episode with the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Why would that be, Sam? Well, we talked about manhood, manliness, the crisis of men, masculinity, and what all of our friends on the right have to say about how men should be and, and what's wrong with them today. But that meant that we also had to talk about our own relationship to our maleness, and that made me a little bit nervous, but I think it was really fun. Yes. As Josh Holly, who we talk about in this episode, might say, we stepped into the breach <laughs> and, and exercised courage in taking on this subject. I have to say, there were times in this episode where I did feel a little silly, because it does feel a little silly to talk about manhood. But I think that's a fine way to approach the subject, because I think having humor about oneself is also an important manly quality. Yes. If you're going to bang on and on about manliness and you don't do so with a little bit of sheepishness and a little bit of humor, that's bad. I feel like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we do, just for listeners, we're not going to tell you much about this episode, but it is focused on two books. Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, his new book called Manhood. And then we reach back to Harvey Mansfield's 2006 book, Manliness. It was funny when I was talking to Hannah about doing this, she's been writing a lot about Philip Roth lately. And she mentioned that Philip Roth sometimes uses the adverb manfully. <laughs> so it'd be like, manfully, he lifted his head. And <laughs> I do think that's hilarious and very Rothian. But also, I feel that manfully we took on this touchy subject. Well, we shouldn't give anything more away. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent. They sponsor the podcast. Uh, we love partnering with them. One thing they do for us is if you subscribe for $10 a month to Know Your Enemy on our Patreon at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy, you get a free digital subscription to Descent. And if you subscribe for $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. So please do consider uh, supporting us on Patreon. And if you would, consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It's always helpful to help people find the podcast and give them a sense of what it's about. Yeah. Let's let's get a hot KYE summer. <laughs> yes. We want summer of 2023 to be the KYE summer. <laughs> As always, we want to thank Jesse Brenneman, our intrepid producer, who did a great job with the three and a half hours that we recorded for this episode, and Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast. And is there anything else to say? No, we should get to our conversation about what's the deal with men? What is the <laughs> deal with men? Alrighty, Samuel, well, let's get to it. Today, we're going to hash out some stuff about a very non-controversial... <laughs> non-anxiety-inducing, definitely not a please-don't-cancel-us topic, which is manliness, manhood, being a man. The What's Wrong With Men episode of Know Your Enemy. Yes, exactly. I was talking to Hannah, my girlfriend. I mean, she knew what we were doing because she saw me reading books called Manliness, Manhood, What's Up With Men, like all week. <laughs> but she said, is it just the two of you? And I said, yeah. I mean, we, we have the authority to talk about, <laughs> about manhood, which is the two of us. But that being said, if there's any moment at which we need a woman's uh, perspective on these matters, Hannah's just across the wall and is willing to uh, <laughs> come and settle any uh, outstanding issues. You know, normally, Sam, it's me that has the 
a personal experience, the firsthand, you know, I was a young conservative, but you too are also a man. So this may be one of the first episodes where you can say, as a man, <laughs> as an X, as a Y. I have been socialized into maleness, and I will rely on that experience in the course of this episode. Now, this podcast is about the right, and, and I think it's very hard to talk about the, say, post-war conservative movement without gender as a major feature of it, Yeah, right? Traditional gender roles, the kind of apparatus around how we think about equality, what that means in terms of, you know, our professional lives, educational lives, yeah. so on and so forth. You know, gender is a big part of that story. And we've done, you know, a number of episodes on, say, the overturning of Roe. We've done a couple of episodes on transgender rights and issues, mm -hmm. uh, but we haven't really talked about men and manliness <laughs> and gender and politics with that being the focus. And, you know, one reason we wanted to do this, the kind of nominal occasion for this is this is in the air, right? This is a topic a lot of people are talking about. But more recently, one Josh Hawley published a book just this last month, published on May 16th, was his book. Manhood, the Masculine Virtues, America Needs. Right. So if you have a, a United States senator and significant figure on the right, you're writing a book about manhood and masculine virtues. That in itself is kind of an interesting occasion to talk about it. But if anything, Holly's book is a trailing or lagging indicator. Yeah. It's been in the discourse for a few years now, at least. It's always, I mean, it's an eternal question, <laughs> but in the discourse in a particular way in the past few years. Yeah. I mean, for listeners, we did read Josh Hawley's book, Manhood. Again, the, the suffering we endure on behalf of the listeners has no end, and we will talk about it. <laughs> but yeah, it's not just like, obviously, there's an anti-feminist element to the contemporary right. There was an anti-feminist element to other eras of, of right-wing politics. You know, a lot of the new right was organized around opposition to the women's liberation movements and to gay liberation and so on. So that's always in the mix. I think something that's characteristic of the recent discourse about manhood, masculinity, men, is that across the political spectrum, there's somewhat of a, an agreement that there's something wrong with men. There's something going on, that men are falling behind. There's a litany of statistics we could go through about this. But it's basically that like men are falling behind women in lower education, in higher education, men are increasingly jobless, they're much more likely to commit suicide, the deaths of despair crisis, the opioid crisis and drug abuse crises among men. You know, there's often discussion of sort of porn addiction, internet addiction, a sort of failure to launch phenomenon among young men, not leaving home, leaving the job market, not getting married, not having children, this sort of loneliness phenomenon, friendlessness among men. There are a lot of statistics that even without attaching sort of an ideological gloss to it, people on the left and the right have pointed to a crisis among young men. I think a sort of representative book focused on this phenomenon from a center-left perspective was the recent book by Richard Reeves of Boys and Men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters, and what to do about it. A very sort of policy-oriented and sociological account of what's going on. And I think it's worth saying, too, about this, that it's not just that men are falling behind women, but it's that men relative to previous generations of men are worse off. And one of the things that Reeves points to especially is that the lower down the economic strata you go, the more 
crises you see. It's also a racialized phenomenon. In particular, black men experience all of these phenomena that we're pointing to, to a higher degree than white men too. Yeah. So Josh Hawley wrote one of the books we're going to talk about. The other one was written in 2006 or published in 2006 by Harvey Mansfield called Manliness. We're going to talk about both those books and get there. But one thing to say here at the start, which Sam, you were getting at, is that most of the things you read about the kind of crisis of men, (laughs) the struggles of men today, they do begin with these kind of litany of statistics. You know, Holly will write, one recent survey found that among 20-something young men considered lower-skilled workers, more than 50% are still living with parents or close relatives. Mm -hmm. That figure includes young men who have a job. For those who don't have a job, fully 70% are living at home. Here's another example. In 1970, Holly writes, 95% of 30-year-old men earned more than their fathers had. By 2014, only 44% of 30-year-olds could say the same. Right. The overall portrait is a fairly dire one for men, especially younger men coming up now in this country. And I guess, Sam, like one question I kind of had for you is, like, what's the main takeaway for you? <laughs> what's being conveyed by this kind of like crisis yeah, yeah. of masculinity of men rhetoric? I think sort of regardless of whether this is the right way to think about it. I think that what is being conveyed is that there's some kind of perilous drift and aimlessness that is assailing young men. They don't know what to do with themselves, that they feel useless, that they don't know how to be a man, that they aren't being encouraged in their (laughs) manliness, or they don't really know how to relate to their manliness. Even in the Richard Reeves book, which is really kind of down the middle, sociological, policy wonkish account of what's wrong, he kind of ends in a place that sounds like this, this kind of malaise of men. And I think, obviously, that's a very comfortable place for conservatives to play in, because they want to say, of course, as, as Holly does, that like, There's something wrong with society, which has lost its kind of traditional virtues and has lost a sort of appreciation for men as men, that in fact is hostile to men as men. And I think that's kind of the occasion for this episode is like, clearly conservatives, they've always said that like, you know, feminism, liberalism, etc. have undermined male dominion and male power and they have cheapened maleness in modern society. You know, like Josh Hawley might have said exactly the same things he says in this book, regardless of whether those statistics would have supported his argument. But they're seizing upon this real empirical crisis to sell that message even more so now. So the occasion for the episode is like, there is something going on, and conservatives are clearly making hay of it, recruiting people for their movements and for their political agenda. I mean, you can look at other indicators of that, that actually there's an increasing ideological polarization between the sexes and, and party polarization between the sexes. It is really striking. I mean, you can even look at, say, the 2020 election data. In some ways, you know, Trump probably was a particularly bad candidate to kind of woo women. But Biden generally performed like 12 to 15 points higher with women than Trump did. Yeah. I mean, I think that more than that, we want to assess the kind of sociological phenomena that sort of a Richard Reeves is pointing to. We're more interested in looking at like, what is manhood, masculinity, and manliness doing for conservatives in their 
politics today and their rhetoric and their ideology? What has it done mm-hmm. in the past? But also, how does the left and liberals speak to maleness? And do we succeed? Are we being insufficient in addressing men <laughs> as men in a way that is dangerous for you know anti-democratic movements or far-right politics and so on? I mean, we didn't even mention yet, but like obviously there's another indicator, which is the popularity of people like Jordan Peterson and even more noxiously, Andrew Tate. I mean, these people fill stadiums when they go to speak all over the world and young men show up, basically these sort of really clownish in many ways, but successful self-help gurus, male self-help gurus, have a huge following. I was just searching on the podcast app for stuff about masculinity, and there are dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of podcasts about men and how to be a man and how to be a better man. What manliness means. How to be a good husband, how to be a good father. And I have to say that like every single one I saw and everyone I listened to a snippet of was in some way right-wing coded. I mean, in some sort of implicit or explicit way, seemed to be speaking a language that is a natural idiom for conservatives and a very unnatural one for, for liberals. Yes. No, I totally agree, Sam. We're going to talk about Holly's book in particular in a few moments. But it, just to give listeners a sense of the rhetoric... It is very explicitly connected to politics. Like Holly in particular renders this as a political crisis. And I just want to read one line from the book where he says, no menace to this nation is greater than the collapse of American manhood, right. the collapse of masculine strength. Right. So it's, it's not just like a discrete sociological problem that's, that's kind of interesting and they're addressing it. The whole political crisis that the right sees unfolding a significant part of it you know, has to do with men yeah. and their kind of lack of direction or, or society's supposed hostility to them. And so there's kind of two things to say here. One is, as you were kind of getting at, there is a kind of roster of right-wing coded, at least, figures who are taking up this issue. Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, Bronze Age pervert, Joe Rogan in his way, yeah. people like Josh Hawley. I would even say something like the Barstool conservatives, right? That sort of strain on the right. And this is all happening against the backdrop of things like, it wasn't that long ago, less than a decade, when same-sex marriage was legalized. Like, as the right would put it, there's this like broader confusion. Of gender roles. Yes. You know, it used to be kind of, you knew what it meant to be a man. And there was a life plan, a kind of success sequence, right, that you could follow. And as those things, especially in someone like Holly's telling, but, you know, I think a lot of people on the right would agree, the supposed traditional virtues of being a man have been so denigrated. The way men were supposed to act, that's been destroyed by the left, by feminists. And and so I feel like the, the broader context for this really is, you know, also the rise of gay rights, transgender rights, LGBTQ rights and issues more broadly in the past few years? Well, I feel like I want to read something from an essay that we may go back to later on by a friend of the pod, Phil Chrisman, his excellent essay on maleness, on being a man. I think it, the original title was How to Be a Man. Yeah. What is it like to be a man in the Hedgehog Review, summer 2018 by Phil Chrisman? I want to read just this one paragraph because I feel like we're already falling victim to the dynamic that he describes here. Phil writes, manhood resists 
straightforward discussion, even as men stand accused, correctly insofar as any accusation directed at such a broad target cannot fail to hit, of sucking the air from every conversation. We do have plenty of talk about masculinity, but talk is all it is, aimless and non-consecutive, never the sense of anything developing. I'm sorry, listeners, if we've already (laughs) fallen victim to that, but I want to read the rest of this. He says, sophisticated opinion rarely gets beyond the elementary observation that masculinity is a social construct, or a set of many such constructs. As for unsophisticated opinion, it is a dank seller most impressively represented by the Canadian academic Jordan Peterson, who bangs the table for logic and reason while basing much of his thought on the ideas of a discredited occultists. Peterson's reliance on the work of Carl Jung is revealing. If you want to defend traditional masculinity as a kind of slaying dragons for its own sake— but you can't offer a rational analysis of why this behavior is necessary or why it is good or why you need a penis to do it, the archetype theory offers you a pretentious and grandiose way of saying it is what it is. It dignifies tautology. Uh, (laughs) It's hard for me to, when I start reading from Phil Zessi, not to just read the whole thing on the air because it gets at so much of what I want to get at in this episode. But right there, I think just the fact that talking about manhood, manliness, maleness, masculinity, which we're going to do on this episode, it does have this feeling of you can't ever get anywhere. It kind of falls through your fingers when you start to talk about it. I feel that. And I think that's why people like Jordan Peterson, who are relying on this kind of archetype theory from Carl Jung and from Joseph Campbell and this kind of idea of, of sort of like that, that maleness is constructed through history via these sort of myths that are out there, these stories. And you can kind of just pick and choose whichever ones to kind of tell a story about what a man is. It is this kind of soupy, unspecific, irrational mess that gets on your hands when you try to talk about it. But for somebody whose supposedly serious academic project is just kind of picking up parts of the soupy mess and saying, see, this is what a man is, see, this is what a man is, they're on firmer ground, so to speak, than those of us who think that like, when you talk about something, you should make sense. I think at the least, it's fair to say that discussions of gender can be complex. And being attentive to that complexity rhetorically sort of pales in comparison to someone like Jordan Peterson, just cuts through it all. It says, this is what a man is. Get up, pull up your pants, make your bed, get a job, get married, yeah. et cetera, right? And I think in an age where there's a lot up in the air about these questions, there is an attractiveness to that. Oh, of course. Cutting through confusion and complexity to say, no, here's what it means to be a man. Get your ass in gear and get going. Yeah. And I, I don't want to preempt the kind of broader conversation we want to arrive at towards the end of the episode. But one thing that I keep thinking is like gender and maleness is a social construct. That means it needs to be constructed. You know, our curiosity about maleness should not end. It couldn't possibly end by saying it's a construct. Then the question is, well, what's it constructed of? And how should it be constructed instead if we think there's something wrong with it? Yes, yeah, we will get there. I mean, even the other book, Harvey Mansfield's book, there is this interesting way in which Mansfield's book even kind of points us in that direction because he, he's talking about, you know, feminism and, and what that wrought. He'll say, you know, men are fine with women 
in Harvey's language, like acting like men, right? Going for the CEO job, competing in the marketplace, right. working, etc. But when it comes to then men taking on women's work, so to speak, changing yeah. diapers, staying at home, household chores, and so on, that part of the equation they've been far more resistant to. Mm-hmm. And so it, the kind of more constructive aspect that you're getting at, I think, is the critique of patriarchy and the more abhorrent, you know, gross male behaviors, you know, that critique has been sort of accepted, but some alternative is still waiting to be built. Yeah. You know, like what are men for? That is the question kind of left then once you've made the critique and the right is addressing them in very particular ways. Yeah. So maybe we should start talking about these books. I mean, it's, it's a little bit just cute that we're talking about one book by Josh Hawley called Manhood and one book by the Harvard Straussian academic Harvey Mansfield called Manliness. (laughs) I do think it's a nice pairing, not only because they're they're sort of addressed to the same topic and from like, what would we call it, like a sub-generation removed, but also they approach it in such different ways. Like, Hawley's book is really kind of exegetical. It's basically all about the Old Testament with some amount of story from his own life. Mansfield's book... It's a playful, coy, philosophical kind of romp. It's very Straussian and sort of just bringing in his preferred masculine archetypes. He's got a whole chapter in there on Nietzsche. He's got his sort of chosen sort of literary references. It's almost impossible to imagine a book like this being written today by a conservative. I mean, I know our listeners are probably rolling their eyes because we're, we're like pining for the more sophisticated conservatives, but it really is a very sophisticated book with a lot of different and interesting and sometimes contradictory things to say about what manliness is. I mean, it, it was kind of a phenomenon when it came out too, which is quite odd given what kind of book it is. Though I heard Mansfield say on a podcast that that it was reviewed everywhere and every magazine got a feminist critic to write about it, <laughs> but that it didn't sell that well, <laughs> which is not so surprising. He was on TV and on radio, he said, for like a whole year, he was just doing stuff about this book because it was obviously like, it just struck a nerve with the intelligentsia. But it's not so surprising that the book itself didn't sell that well because it is a quite complex, often dense though I think pleasing read. But that's very different from what we get from Josh Hawley. (laughs) No, for sure, Sam. I mean, I've mentioned before on the podcast, I can't talk about this book without telling this story. So I hope you and listeners will indulge me. But, you know, I knew Mansfield. I can't say we were close friends or anything. But when I was a young conservative, I got to know him pretty well, I felt like, in at least a professional sense. And interestingly enough, the first time I met him was my senior year of college, if you can imagine this, the Harvard Straussian coming to teach a one or two credit course at Grove City College. And he came to Grove City to give lectures about Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which he had just translated with his his then wife, his late wife, Delva Winthrop. But because I was a senior and I was a political science student, I was like going to grad school, I was given the task one day of shuttling him around campus. And I remember walking around, it was a beautiful spring morning, and uh, asking what his next project was. And he told me he was working on a book about manliness. <laughs> and I, I was very interested in this, as you might imagine, being a closeted homosexual, <laughs> you know, with, with a father who made rifles for a living, right, growing up hunting and fishing. All that was in the mix. And one thing I told him was, this was probably at the peak of my, like, Hemingway fandom, that if he was writing about manliness, he had to really go back and read Hemingway. 
And, you know, when the book came out two years later, this is 2004, the book comes out in 2006, the Hemingway presence is notable in the book. Yep. Now, I mean, obviously, Harvey Mansfield is a cultured and well-read person. He doesn't need me to tell him about Hemingway. But nevertheless, I've always wondered if I played a minor role in the shape of this book. I'm perfectly willing to give you full credit for Mansfield's reading of Old Man in the Sea. <laughs> it is, of course, you know, one isn't sure either in your choice of recommending it or in his choice of including it, whether he was aware of and enjoyed the kind of perverse aspect of the fact that, you know, Hemingway has some queerness about him, too. <laughs> Given that Mansfield's book is quite playful, including the fact that he says, like, I will not address homosexuality in this book. Yes. He says it right at the start. He said, I'll leave that to others. <laughs> and but then, of course, like, because he's a Straussian, he's talking about the Greeks enormously. And it's just absurd yeah. to be talking about the Greek notion of masculinity without talking about homosexuality. Totally. It's almost like the biggest sort of dereliction of his intellectual duty that he does in this book, which otherwise is a kind of pay-in to risk-taking <laughs> as the sort of yes. core masculine virtue. Yes, he was playing it safe there. And, you know, I just wanted to say as well that one reason we included the Mansfield book in this episode alongside Josh Hawley's book is because it is sort of a great example of the way highbrow right-wing intellectuals and more popular expressions of them kind of interact. Because I think it is fair to say that the Mansfield book, as you've said before, Sam, is very playful. It's ironical. There's definitely, I think, some esoteric winks and nods in it. Sure. And it acknowledges complexity in a certain way. I mean, one of the examples Mansfield gives is how we appreciated manly men anew after 9-11, right? The rescuers, the people who charged into the crashing and burning buildings, right, to save others, so on and so forth. But it was also only men who crashed the planes into the buildings. Yeah. And what could account for what they did, a courageous act, whatever else it was, but manliness. Yeah. So it's, it's like Mansfield is very attentive to both the possible upsides and virtues of manliness, as well as their more pathological and dangerous and unwelcome expressions. Yeah. I would say before we get into the text in more detail, that one of the theses of his book is that we need manliness to protect society from the excesses of manliness, right? I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. That the liberal rational society perilously tries to excise manliness while not appreciating that without manliness, society is susceptible to the excesses of manliness. And now you could think about that in really stupid, obvious terms, like he's saying like, oh, well, like, like liberalism leaves us open to Islamic terrorism if we're not willing to like go and wage war against the Muslim enemy, because of our, our liberal nicety, our lack of manliness leaves us open to, to be imperiled by the manliness of others. But there's more sophisticated ways of thinking about it, too, which I think he does engage with in the book. I did note, he doesn't invoke John Wayne's movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which we've talked about briefly before in the podcast. Yeah. But he does invoke John Wayne is like the ideal of American manliness. Yeah. I also enjoyed that he t he talked about Gary Cooper because it reminded me of uh, <laughs> Tony Soprano. <laughs> yes. But it, it did make me think of, again, since Mansfield doesn't reference it explicitly, the man who shot Liberty Valance, but the idea that you need like the manly, heroic figure right. to establish 
order, right? political order especially. And that might entail kind of going beyond the law, right? right? Acting right. almost in a vigilante fashion. You need the kind of manly man to defeat other manly men yeah. in order to kind of establish a sound political order. Yes. So that kind of contrast between the highbrow and... Middlebrow? Middlebrow, yes. I think Holly's book is distinctly middlebrow. Yes. The reason I hesitated to call it lowbrow is that Holly actually writes pretty well, I thought. Yeah, he does. I hate to admit it. I mean, it's a very interesting contrast with Ron DeSantis' campaign book that we discussed just a few episodes ago, because Holly, the prose is much more lively. It's it's well-written. I do feel like Holly has the practice of the very evangelical mode of confession and kind of talking about your feelings and inner life in some way. Yes. Even before we were recording, Sam, you mentioned kind of how moving the discussion of his wife's miscarriage was in that book. And and there are a number of moments where he actually seems to reflect on his life and his inner life in ways that are fairly compelling and believable in a way that someone like Ron DeSantis, there was nothing at all in his book like that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And this is why I, I'm actually eager to hear about your overall reactions to the book, because I think you're probably much more kind of (laughs) attuned to that timbre or note in his writing of it being that kind of confessional evangelical quality. I mean, we should say, I think I already sort of alluded to this, the book is basically Bible exegesis mixed with every so often a story from his own life, and then every so often, much too often, a kind of freak out about how the left is so bad and terrible and crazy. I mean, you mentioned the passage about his wife's miscarriage. It is genuinely very moving and I think very well written. And I don't know what else to say. It's just, it's it's well done. I, I do think that it's worth just saying for our sakes and for the listeners and for our souls that it's also just deeply disturbing and sort of evil that he's also like the sort of handmaiden of a, of a political movement that wants women to die from miscarriages if they are living in a state where they can't get an abortion in a pregnancy that's endangering their life. So that like all of the kind of humanity that he really genuinely does display in this book at various times should not be an alibi for his obviously atrocious political projects. I totally agree. And maybe I should talk about the religious aspect of this book. Please do. Yeah. I would say just as a basic first order comment, my reaction to the book when I started reading it was just, I did not know it would be this religious. Yeah. I mean, it's not shocking in the sense that, you know, Holly's an openly Christian political figure, right? That's a major part of his public persona. So it's not surprising that it would be written from a basically Christian perspective. I just didn't realize it would be so explicitly basically an exegesis of the Old Testament from a Christian perspective or the Hebrew Bible, yeah, especially the Genesis story, the Garden of Eden, but also then throughout, it's like Abraham, Joshua, King David. Solomon. Yeah, yeah Solomon. It's There's a whole run of kind of biblical figures that he uses as, as basically typologies of what a man should be. And in fact, where the book lands, where it really cashes out is that there's like kind of four aspects to masculinity, to manhood that he discusses, and they are a man should be a warrior, a builder, 
a priest and a king. Yeah. But I, I wanted to say kind of beyond that, early in the book, there's a reference to Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch political figure and, and intellectual. And he's very well known among Reformed, which is say Calvinist conservative Christians. He's a favorite of theirs. And in general, I think this book, if you're kind of a very smart Protestant, as Josh Hawley is, I do think Calvin and Calvinism is the most robust or one of the most robust kind of intellectual traditions, theological traditions you can engage with. And this is very much a book in that vein. You know, when I lived in D.C. as a young graduate student, I went to an Episcopal church for a while, but then changed to this like startup reformed church, Calvinist church. And one of the people I met there is Ben Sass who would become a senator from Nebraska. And that was a very Calvinist kind of reformed church. And I just want to say kind of the way Holly uses the Hebrew Bible, the way he talks about covenants, the idea of a covenant is so central to Calvinist theology. And then later he references the Puritans. And we know that kind of covenantal thinking was central to the Puritans who like came to the new world, came to America. And so there's a whole tradition of kind of theology here that is very friendly to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's kind of a story of continuity, whereas other kind of traditions of Christianity sometimes are uh, emphasize the discontinuity, right, between the Old Testament and new. Anyway, that's all to say that this is an extremely Christian book. I I joked on Twitter that this was like Holly's audition to be a megachurch pastor. He gets the job, in my opinion, if (laughs) It's very, you know, it it definitely does what I think those sorts of sermons are meant to do, including the kind of talking about his own struggles. Now Uh that you say that, I'm like hearing him giving this book as a sermon and the sort of Adam's story, the story of man that he tells in the book sort of follows his own sort of trajectory of, of finding himself ultimately through fatherhood, especially. I do think you're exactly right. It seems to me that like what he gets from... The Old Testament is the covenant. And I think it seems to operate in two ways for him. One, that masculinity is about subservience, right? That the kind of autonomy that's supposedly offered by liberalism, what he will call Epicurean liberalism, we'll talk about that more in a minute, that autonomy is meaningless. The access to many choices and many fine things is meaningless without being subservient to some kind of higher power or to some kind of duty. So the the marriage bond for him is a covenant, right? That what men do in being married is submit themselves to a set of duties, and that is the way in which their life has meaning. They also submit themselves to God. They're serving a higher power. But the other thing about a covenant is that it's also about a chosen people who must protect their own community And that comes up over and over again in the way that he tells the story of the Old Testament. In the Garden of Eden, Adam's mistake is that he doesn't protect paradise from evil. He wasn't there to intervene when the serpent tempted Eve. Yes. His failure is to allow the forces of evil to penetrate the borders of paradise. And then in the same way... When a new Eden is founded in Israel, in Jerusalem, the obligation of man is to protect his domain from enemies from without. One of the things that really struck me about the difference between Hawley's concept of masculinity and Mansfield's is that for Mansfield, as we've already said, masculinity, manhood, manliness must be valued in order to protect a society from manliness. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, the call is coming from inside the house in Mansfield's view. But Holly is always insisting upon the idea that the danger that men must protect the people under their care from comes from without. It comes from the other. It comes from beyond the borders of Eden. Yes. Here's a quote from relatively early in the book. Again, he's talking about Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. Holly writes, At the heart of Adam's mission was the obligation to place himself between the good things God had given him, his wife, his family, his home, and evil. Adam was to be part of God's solution to the danger in the world. If evil would enter the garden, it had first to contend with him. <laughs> right, right, right. That kind of... Placing yourself between home and hearth in danger, it's just shot throughout the book. And one of those four kind of archetypes we mentioned was warrior. Yeah. That's the first one he really describes. Yeah. I mean, maybe just to give an overall sense for the listener, like what would you sort of say are the kinds of manly virtues in Holly's view? What kinds of aspects of maleness is he trying to valorize against the, the terrible liberals who are, are trying to undermine them? Well, I think one thing to say, which I haven't said yet, but is the backdrop to a more specific answer to your question is, you know, Grove City College, where I mentioned going, where I met Harvey Mansfield, that was a Calvinist school, basically. Mm -hmm. It was coming out of the Reformed tradition. And so uh, actually reading Holly, it, it gave me this very interesting kind of like flashbacks to like mm. freshman year. There was kind of a, a humanities course everyone had to take. And it was sort of like a Christian worldview class, a term I'm sure Josh Holly knows well. But one of the real emphases is, and I'm sure you'll recognize this in the book, it's that God created the world, but then that covenant between God and Adam, God and man, it gives man dominion over the world. Right. And so man becomes like a co-creator with God. You know, it's about tending the Garden of Eden, but also kind of expanding it. Right. And it's in part about bringing order out of chaos. Right. Like Holly gives this like exegesis of the creation stories in Genesis. Right. right? And kind of pitches the whole project as in one sense, every individual man's story is a part of this bigger cosmic story. Right. In which right. he is with God, a kind of co-creator or co-tender of the earth. And so I think to now answer your question a little more specifically, it's kind of, to use Mansfield's language, like the, the virtues of ruling. Yeah. Right. Uh, of deciding, of providing, yeah. um, of being strong, uh, of being decisive. He doesn't talk about women hardly at all. No. <laughs> right. It's written for men by a man and it's exclusively concerned with men i actually had this sort of amazing tobias funke moment the character from arrested development who you know the joke is that he's actually gay but yeah, he's married yeah. to a woman and he writes this book called the man inside me that becomes like the surprise hit among like the gay community in california <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. And all these kind of weirdly written lines kind of take on new resonance. And I did have this kind of sensation a number of times reading the book. Like to give one example, on page 79, he's talking about you getting married, making a vow. And he said, and having vowed, a husband must endure. <laughs> page 162, worship is an acknowledgement that a man needs to be filled. Okay, Matt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think endurance is certainly a key theme. Endurance, 
obligation, duty, burden. I think kind of to explain sort of some of the psychology behind this, I really think it is something like, I remember once I was very hungover with a friend of mine and we were getting breakfast the next morning. And it was like in our mid to late 20s, kind of like when you're most existentially fraught, right? Which had been why we were drinking. I remember he said, you know, Matt, if I just knew my duty, I could do it. Yes. And I feel like that's a major through line in Holly's book is that, you know, the confusion of the modern age, the critiques of liberalism and the left have rendered it such that people, men, have forgotten their duties. But actually, it's pretty simple, right? You get a job, save some money, get married, have kids, provide for them. It's a boom, boom, boom sequence. That sense of actually you have duties, do them. Just you can do still them. do them. Do yeah. them now. Yeah. And obviously, we know that that's attractive to a lot of people in a time where people feel adrift or lost, then the imposition of duties can be extremely satisfying. I was thinking about when you were saying about uh, the man inside me, the Bob Dylan song, The Man in Me. The first line in the song is, the man in me will do nearly any task. (laughs) And I just, I had never really thought about that line. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's more or less all that I think being a man is. (laughs) The man in me will do nearly any task. (laughs) Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. And again, like that's I'm bringing it up in a jokey way, but that is kind of what Josh Hawley is saying too. A duty. Yes. Well, I think now would be a good time to introduce the boogeyman of Josh Hawley's book, at least the boogeyman other than liberals and the left today, which is Epicureanism. Yeah. It's such a strange thing. It is super strange. And I feel like we need to talk about it some. So basically, by Epicureanism, he means... The thought of Epicurus. (laughs) Yes, like literally the thought of Epicurus, which is to say that there's no kind of meaning or telos to the universe, right? It's matter and motion. This has been a a bee in his bonnet for years. (laughs) In the fall of 2010, 13 years ago almost, he published in National Affairs, the kind of neoconservative magazine, a piece called America's Epicurean Liberalism. And in that piece, which is echoed in his more recent book, this is how he describes it. Uh, I said, this creed celebrates individual liberty, which makes it a form of liberalism. Okay. But it defines that liberty in relation to an exceptionally radical ideal of individual self-fulfillment, which makes it Epicurean. In fact, it treats the two things, liberty and unobstructed self-fulfillment, as virtually synonymous. Call it Epicurean liberalism. And then he says, this is so interesting, he says, perhaps the best working definition of this worldview was offered by the Supreme Court 18 years ago in a case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The court had been asked to decide whether the Constitution permitted states to impose certain restrictions on abortion, ruling that it did not a three-justice plurality explained the court's judgment by discussing their understanding of liberty. Now, here's the key part. Quote, at the heart of liberty, wrote Justices Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under the compulsion of the state. So for him, that by invoking Epicureanism, it's, it's about choice. It's about the right to choose your own ends in life, self-definition, self-discovery, so on and so forth. And, and it's about seeking pleasure, happiness at some level, too. Right. If there's no meaning in the universe, then all you can do is, is pursue happiness, the sort of eudaimonic <laughs> life, or you can pursue peace and freedom from fear and the absence of pain. 
So you just, you prefer happiness, pleasureness, and the absence of pain. And a good life is lived when you have maximized all of those things. So for Holly, like Epicureanism is his kind of container shibboleth for everything that he doesn't like about modern society. It's just funny that he's stuck to it because like Epicureanism just doesn't mean anything to anybody besides him and people who like study antiquity. In some ways, it makes me a little bit like perversely sympathetic to him because it was like this concept that he came up with when he was like young and intellectually inclined. And he's like, even now when he's writing a book that's in some ways meant to like bolster his political career, he still can't stop calling it Epicurean liberalism. <laughs> it's just like he wanted to make this thing happen. Yeah. Right? Like he wanted Epicurean liberalism to have the role that like CRT or wokeness or yeah. cultural Marxism has on the right now, right? This was his version of one of those things that he wanted to make happen. It is like the mean girls give up. You're never going to make Epicurean liberalism happen. thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say about the role Role that invoking the Epicurean liberal menace plays in this book, it's really silly and, and noxious and like really kind of undermines the argument of the book because so much of what he's talking about is that like what maleness is, what manhood is, to use the title, is like taking responsibility for yourself and shouldering burdens and not like blaming others for your problems. And he'll say that and tell stories about it and use Bible stories to justify that way of thinking about maleness, the sort of stoical, non-resentment fueled kind of concept of, of what it means to be a good man. And then like a paragraph later, he'll say, but really the problem is this evil left. You know, the left is actually what creates all the problems in society. And it actually like struck me reading it. It felt like a a really fundamentally different register than the way that he was writing the rest of the book. And it always just reminded me like, oh, yeah, you're a fucking idiot. Like, you're an asshole. Like, you can't really take seriously his kind of reflections on <laughs> his reading of the biblical instructions about how to be a good person when like every so often he abandons them entirely to say, but it's actually not anybody's fault except for the Epicurean liberals who hate us and despise everything I'm saying here. He just sounds like a like an idiot, and a, and and, he, and he's whining and complaining in a way that I think both he and Mansfield would agree is very unmanly. Yes, no, I totally agree, and I think one reason I wanted to mention the bizarre emphasis on Epicureanism, there's never attempt to really link it to today's left or liberals in like a intellectual genealogy. It's just kind of like Epicureans thought this. And Marx was an Epicurean and the feminists were Epicureans. Right, right. <laughs> like, right, yeah. There is this kind of like trajectory from the Epicureans to Rousseau to Marx. But here's the kind of cash out for it. I'm going to read from the book. This is uh, page 113, so maybe about halfway through it. He says this. What today's Epicureans fail to consider is the possibility that manhood is real and biological, that men have all that drive and ambition for a purpose. Maybe evil is real, too, and lodged in the recesses of the human heart, where men and women must confront it themselves. Maybe evil is not, as today's Epicureans have it, a mere matter of adjusting social systems. And given all that, maybe male power is necessary. Maybe we need strong men to protect the garden of civilization. Maybe we need strong men to win a place for the light. And so there's a couple things going on there. You see, one of the things he's really rejecting here is the idea that being a man or a woman is not 
sown in nature. Yeah. Right? That like these things are given to us. They're given things. They're kind of dictated by nature. It's a biological thing. It's a natural thing. There's men and there's women. And certain things come with that, that men are ambitious, that they have drive, that they are stronger and are protectors. They're warriors, priests, builders, kings, etc., as we were saying earlier, right? But those are kind of sown into nature. And Holly kind of, you know, registers them in a especially biblical, evangelical Christian key, right? Like, he backs all this up less with, like, statistics or... Anthropology. He does cite one anthropologist in particular. David Gilmore. David Gilmore, yes. Not the guitarist from Pink Floyd. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, it's mostly arguing from biblical texts, that the biblical texts provide a typology, a kind of framework, a set of duties and obligations. You can read these texts, but you can see how that kind of rejection of, like, human malleability... Yeah. Right, the idea that even if nature does kind of hand certain things down to us, they they maybe shouldn't be entirely determinative of our life course. There's all kinds of things that are wrapped up into that. But it's interesting that like Jordan Peterson might use the Jungian typology. Holly uses biblical stories. Others might reference certain science or social yeah, science. Yeah. Right, like this kind of comes in different registers. But the Epicureanism for Holly again, it's the thing he's kind of arguing against. And the use to which he puts it is to argue for these kind of essentialist dictates about what it means to be a man. One thing that struck me was that Holly does take a shot at Andrew Tate in the book, who he describes basically as like an Epicurean reactionary. Of course, it's like it's still the Epicureans' fault, the liberals. You know, he says every action produces an opposite and equal reaction, and there is accordingly a male-specific version of the Epicurean myth that appears to rebel against the left's denigration of men. And so he sort of treats Andrew Tate as sort of representative of in an Epicurean society, in a liberal society, you know, men and boys become susceptible to a story about how masculinity is really about exploitation and about pleasure-seeking. Pleasure-seeking. And, you know, he says Tate's idea of success apparently involved sleeping with as many women as possible, berating them, abusing them, and celebrating it all as manly, as freedom. And I think it's worth saying so much of this discourse about men and masculinity and the sort of crisis of men that we pointed to in the beginning, there's so much of it about it that is kind of hygienic or it's like about like preventing a worse outcome. <laughs> there's so much of it that's about like if we don't embrace this, then something worse will come along. And I, I'm, I'm saying this as like I said something like that in the beginning. I do think that like without some kind of positive affirmation of what maleness might be that is conducive to or sort of compatible with our political and moral vision, then we're in trouble. But it is really interesting to see Hawley saying, like, Andrew Tate is an Epicureanism of the right. Yes. Hawley writes, quote, Tate and company do not challenge the Epicurean line. They merely rehearse it in a nihilistic, misogynistic key. Yeah. And one interesting thing about that section on Tate, or at least the line I just read, is this, and it's another quote from the book, which I, I think will help move us forward some here in the, in the conversation. He says, this mixed message puts young men especially in a bind, meaning I think kind of the message of Epicureanism and kind of the way we talk and think about these things now. Continuing the quote, they're supposed to fashion an identity entirely of their own choosing in order to be authentic, but leave out the features that have defined men for millennia. Good luck with that. No wonder young men feel bewildered. Yeah. I mean, you know, like (laughs) one of the reasons I'm not a conservative is that 
because a social norm has existed for millennia does not mean that it is therefore virtuous, therefore valuable. <laughs> right. right? That's, that's one of the ways I know I'm not a conservative. But I will agree that the kind of postmodern moment in which identities are crafted and our sort of kind of obligation as individuals is to craft one for ourselves, mixing that with other kinds of deprivations in one's life or anxieties and pains or suffering, that is a tall order for a lot of people. <laughs> it's perilous. And uh, again, as we've sort of already referenced a few times, the fact that conservatives or sort of reactionary self-help gurus will just say, here's what a man is, be that, obviously has some appeal to people who are lost or grown weary by the task of having to craft their self and, and identify the good for themselves. Yes. There is such a thing as human nature for him, right? And that is a very gendered view of human nature. There is such a thing as a man. There is such a thing as a woman. We know what these things are. That kind of view of human nature is key to the entire book. And when he kind of pivots towards politics, it features in very importantly too. So I just wanted to read one quote here, which I think will give listeners a sense of how his argument proceeds. And it's this, quote, but if the left is correct and human nature is pliable, and if the educated elite, meaning the left, knows best what human progress means, if working people suffer from cultural delusions they are too dull to recognize, from which only the elite can free them, there is no true equality between persons. There is the elite, Marcuse's vanguard, and everyone else. There is hierarchy. And so he kind of uses like questions about what is nature, what is nurture, questions about how plastic human nature is or isn't to be like actually the left's view of a kind of non-essentialist view of gender, of, of human nature and so on. That is what authorizes having like a technocratic elite imposing itself on ordinary people. Right. That's so interesting. Yeah, a very strange but also interesting argument. One of the things that struck me reading both of these books and then also just sort of thinking about these matters is that there is a way in which radical feminist critiques of patriarchy and right-wing conservative accounts of what a man is and what the family is for have a lot more in common than what like liberals describe the family and the relationship between between the private and the public sphere is. Do you know what I mean? Like in a way, conservatives actually agree that the personal is political. <laughs> that like actually that the, the dominion in the family, the, the hierarchy within a family is actually essential to the construction of society, right? To the construction of a civilization, which is exactly what, you know, radical feminists said in the 1970s. It was only the liberals who ever thought the marriage contract is purely consensual, right? That every justifiable hierarchy has to be based on consent, like whether it's the, the marriage contract, the labor contract, etc. The radicals who wanted to undo that hierarchy and the conservatives who wanted to maintain it were much more clear-eyed about the fact that like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You liberals are trying to impose an abstraction upon a society, a civilization that has functioned in a certain way for a very, very long time, and that your efforts to kind of impose egalitarianism as a construct upon a system which is fundamentally not egalitarian is a pipe dream. I want to make one other point that follows from your kind of ironical reference to the personal being political, but it's worth saying about Holly's book too, which is th there's absolutely no economics in this book. Yeah. You know, there are the pay-ons to 
working class people, manual labor, men who work with their hands, and the typical sneers at the left or libs, you know, for looking down on those people. But there's no sense that like part of the crisis of manhood, of masculinity, of men, might have to do with the fact that there used to be an economy that was kind of tailored toward men and what they could do with their bodies by being physically capable in certain ways, <laughs> right? Like it wasn't just like a cultural revolution. I mean, th there has been, of course, a great rethinking of mores, manners, cultural assumptions, so on and so forth. But in economic terms, it's like part of what's happening is the kinds of jobs men used to do by virtue of being men yeah. have disappeared or you know nearly so done so in the west right in, a, yeah. in the united states western europe and so on and so it's it's a purely like cultural story about men that holly tells a religious and cultural one that focuses on you know the values and mores of the elite versus supposed working people heartland americans and there's no real accounting for like well certain kinds of jobs breadwinner union jobs on factory lines those decline precipitously and that's part of what's happening too yeah i mean i think holly would probably like just if you said that to him he'd just agree you know what yeah. i mean it doesn't mean that he supports like carjack neutrality or some kind of way that we could actually create a lot more unionization in the country or right right or even that he's on board with like the aspects of the ira that are like about reshoring and economic nationalism but i think that the impulse that like men have become useless because their strength isn't being employed or their urge to sort of build and make things. I think that's actually in the book to some degree. It's just, it doesn't translate into like a policy agenda that affirms kind of lost realm of sort of dignified work. Right. At one point he says, the consequences of the liberal atheist program <laughs> can be observed in other tragic ways, in the widespread anime and discontent that suffuses American society, in the loss of hope for the future and for life itself. It's blaming liberal atheists. It's blaming today's Epicureans. It's so existential. Yeah, it is. You know, lines like, to rule, a man must first order his soul. Lots of lines like that. But it does kind of render class war as a culture war, ultimately, in terms of emphasis. Yeah, I mean, and I think like the, the Richard Reeves book advocates for like more technical schools where boys can be like attracted to education and kept inside of educational institutions by allowing them to do more stuff with their hands. And then he also advocates for like trying to raise in men's eyes the value of the kinds of work that are available, what he calls the heel jobs, like health education, administration. But like amongst the sort of liberal technocrats who are taking this problem seriously, there is more kind of like, okay, what do we do? And Holly is like, you know, read the Bible and shoulder your burdens and duties and you'll be happy. Yes. As he says toward the end of the book, the Bible, that book much maligned by today's cognoscenti, yet still the book we cannot do without tells a different story. Okay. He says over and over again, his line is, the Bible tells a different story. <laughs> uh, yes. The world is not empty. Our lives are not meaningless. History is about something. It is headed somewhere and we can be a part of it. What we do here and now can matter for all time. A man can matter. Yeah. The kind of upshot of the book is man up. Get your life in order. Get a job. Make some money. Marry. Have kids. Be a good provider and protector. And again, all in a key that's very biblical, evangelical Christian. Yeah. That's what authorizes the project is, is the Bible. For better or for worse, I don't think it's going to have quite the appeal of 
Andrew Tate, you know, driving a Maserati. <laughs> Let's talk about Harvey Mansfield. <laughs> yes. A very different sort of book. You know, it is interesting. We kind of mentioned that Holly's is sort of a more middle brow piece of conservative writing. Mansfield's is highbrow. Again, it's published by Yale. And I, I was kind of thinking back to his career, as one does. He's still alive. He's 91 years old. And I would say his chief academic contribution was the study of Machiavelli. Right. Which is so interesting in light of what we've been talking about. I mean, he translated Machiavelli's The Prince, Discourses on Livy, and uh, The Florentine Histories. He's you know, written two or three books about Machiavelli. One of my favorites of his, it's called Taming the Prince, The Ambivalences of Modern Executive Power. And he pitches the American presidency as kind of taming Machiavelli's prince for constitutional government, liberal constitutional government. But that idea of ambivalence, that if Machiavelli is the father of modernity and what it's wrought... As the Straussians say. As the Straussians say. That ambivalence is such a key part of the book. And I kind of wonder if the ambivalence is actually fake. You know, if there's a way in which it hides what he actually believes. I don't really know that for sure. Yeah. But it's written in such a playful and winking way. I mean, in addition to, we should be honest about it, some pretty straightforward conservative views. Of course. One of the things he does very early in the book is say that actually all the relevant kind of social science and anthropology and psychology confirms the basic stereotypes people have about differences between men and women. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about that is that the book starts with him sort of saying, okay, what are the sort of conventions about what manliness is in contemporary society? And so he reads through the conventions as they are derived from social science, from evolutionary biology, and from feminism, <laughs> more or less. And like you're saying, he does sort of like affirm their basic plausibility. Like, they're basically right, you know? And that feels, like, pretty tendentious, because a lot of the things that he cites just seem really stupid. Mm -hmm. But what is then satisfying is that he says, like, this is a terrible ground on which to have this conversation. You know, like, I like that he says, like, the sort of scientific explanation for what masculinity is, social science or evolutionary science, biological science, like this is bullshit. Like, this is unhelpful. And I totally agree. Like, when he gets to the point where he starts talking about philosophy <laughs> and history instead, I'm like, <laughs> all right, now I'm reading this book. But I agree with you that, like, he's obviously very comfortable with the idea that, in essence, the sort of assumptions we have about maleness and femaleness are true. Well, one of the things to note about Mansfield's book is, as we mentioned, it was published in 2006, and it does feel pretty dated. Yeah. Like, as a conversation about sex and gender men and women, those kinds of topics. And one of the reasons it is that way, but it is central to the argument, I feel like, is that the kind of dialogue partner Mansfield establishes is a, a dialogue with gender-neutral society. Right. And it, it almost feels like if someone were to write a book about race, and the main kind of point of view as an interlocutor was... The race-neutral society. Racial neutrality, yeah. yeah. And, and like the, the most thin version of Dr. King's content of our character, not color of our skin, right? right. It just would feel like you're, you're not really arguing with the central arguments in the air. And of course, 
being published in 2006, that's understandable. And so he writes things like, a gender-neutral language implies a gender-neutral society, marking a pervasive change in the way we live our lives. Our society has adopted, quite without realizing the magnitude of the change, a practice of equality between the sexes that has never been known before in all human history. The principle of equality, born in modern times, is several centuries old, but its application to the sexes is very new. Yeah. I think it's an interesting thing because on the one hand, I feel like the kind of assumption in the book is that all polite people buy the idea of gender neutrality, that like men and women are not different and we shouldn't admit that they're different in public. And now it feels to me like we live in more of a moment where it's like conservatives are actually quite insistent on the idea that they're different. Exactly. And for him at the time to insist upon it to him felt like something he had to be coy about and it was a dangerous thing to say. And now it doesn't seem like it's dangerous at all. I think that what he's saying about the notion of a gender-neutral public square, that it's an innovation, a completely new phenomenon, that's just true, right? The idea that like men yeah. and women are basically the same and they are guaranteed as a result of that the same rights, <laughs> that is new. It's not good that it's new. It should be old, but it's new. And I think that yes. one of his main contentions is that liberalism and what he calls sort of the, the rational society, rational control, sort of stumbled into gender neutrality as a result of sort of like philosophical precepts that were set in motion by the original sort of liberal philosophers, but we sort of stumbled into it without sort of fully acknowledging that this is a completely new experiment in how human civilization would function, how we would relate to each other. That's his contention, I think. Yes. Well, there's a lot more we could say about the Mansfield book, obviously, but I thought it'd be useful here to just kind of put on the table where Harvey Mansfield, your old pal Harvey, my old pal Harvey Mansfield, the Harv, as one of his former undergraduate students, she told me when she turned 21, there was a six pack delivered to her dorm and a card that just said, happy birthday, the Harv. <laughs> oh my God, Matt, that's gold. That's what people listen to this podcast for. Where Harvey lands in this book, in terms of sort of defining manliness. Well, here's one line he uses that pretty much summarizes it. Quote, manliness is knowing how to be confident in situations where sufficient knowledge is not available. <laughs> yes. I didn't remember that one. Or he references, quote, the confidence of manly men and their ability to command. The confidence of a manly man gives him independence of others. He is not always asking for help or directions or instructions. He's literally not asking for directions. <laughs> yes. Another quote. The manly man is good at getting things done. And one reason is that he is good at ordering people to get them done. In politics and in other public situations, he willingly takes responsibility when others hang back. He not only stands fast, but also steps up to do what is required. We could kind of multiply quotes like that. He defines it over and over and over again in a very iterative kind of way. Which is part of the slipperiness, too, of the book. Totally. Frankly. But it, it's, it's essentially, and this is one reason I told the Hemingway story earlier, it's essentially a reproduction of Hemingway's definition of courage, which is grace under pressure. Right. Of course, courage for Hemingway, it's not manliness, but one of the interesting things about Mansfield's book is he essentially conflates the two. I think you're right. I think what he found in Hemingway is like a justification for his probably already understood definition that derived from the Greek. Yes. Uh, the Greek word for courage was also, I guess, how you render manliness or something like that. But actually where he introduces that is somewhat of an interesting moment because he says manliness 
Like suffering deals with fear, the Greek word for manliness, andrea, is also the word the Greeks used for courage, their virtue concerned with controlling fear. When we come to fear, we enter the dark side of manliness. This does point to how different this book is from Holly's book, because he is saying when fear is the basis for manliness, we get things like fascism. He writes literally the Third Reich project for purging humanity of inferior races was manliness run amok using vicious means to an impossible end. So again, like his concept of manliness always includes within it the the sort of destructive tendencies. One of the interesting things is he describes the gender-neutral society as being especially friendly to social science, like value-free inquiry into these things. Yeah. And just science, science, not just social science. But then one of the criticisms he levels against this is he says... Science does not even understand aggression correctly or fully because it is completely ignorant of the phenomenon of thumos, known to Plato and Aristotle, but later abandoned because it was inconvenient to the agenda of modern science. Thumos is a quality of spiritedness shared by humans and animals that induces humans, and especially manly men, to risk their lives in order to save their lives. That's a paradox familiar to all human beings who ever get angry. But it is a fact almost unknown in the scientific literature on manliness. And then, this is a key line, as manliness is made out of that paradox, it is, to say the least, more complicated than the simplistic drives of aggression, domination, and self-preservation to which science tries to reduce manliness. Yeah, And I thought that was very interesting because of putting paradox at the center of manliness. It's very interesting that Holly's book draws so much from the Hebrew Bible and there's scarcely a word about Jesus Christ, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Who emphasized meekness, right? Humility, and who get, who actually literally sacrificed his life, told us yes. to turn the other cheek, so on and so forth, right? So there's a real tension between Holly's vision of manhood and the teachings of Jesus Christ, yeah. right? And the way you get around it is you say, well, actually, it's a form of servant leadership, or, you know, it's an exercise of power done with humility. Right, you try right, to right, square right. that circle. The manly man doesn't love domination for its own sake. <laughs> he does not. So it's not that paradox or complexity is entirely absent from Holly's vision, but Manto puts it front and center, which is part of why his book is interesting. I'm reminded because you said about Christianity, I think that one of Mansfield's arguments is that the liberal philosophers of the 18th century and the 19th century basically introduce a kind of constraint upon manliness as he understands it. They're they're actually trying to excise from the proper political society manliness as such through reason, through rational control, through this imposition of democracy and notions of progress and so on. I mean, he writes... What in manliness makes it a target of modern progress? We may sum up the characteristics of manliness as they have been developed, for all of them are obstacles to rational control. Manliness must prove itself and do so before an audience. It seeks to be theatrical, welcomes drama, and wants your attention. Rational control, which is sort of a synonym for him with liberalism, prefers routine and doesn't like getting excited. Manliness is often an act of sacrifice against one's interest, hence concerned with honor and shame rather than money and calculation, to which rational control read liberalism, makes its appeal. Whereas rational control wants our lives to be bound by rules, manliness is dissatisfied with whatever is merely legal or conventional. Manliness favors war, likes risks, and admires heroes. Rational control wants peace, discounts risk, and prefers role models to heroes. I I, want to make clear because 
as you said, Mansfield is ambivalent about manliness. He doesn't say like liberalism is bad in essence and the ways in which liberalism excises manliness from the public sphere is all bad, right? But he does sort of put them in opposition to each other. What he then argues about Nietzsche is that Nietzsche is a reactionary against that effort by liberal philosophers in some ways. In, in essence, Nietzsche despises both Christianity for being a slave morality, <laughs> which sort of alienates men from their aspirations to domineer and to, and to be on top and to be powerful, and then abhors liberalism in a way for being the inheritance of Christianity. Yes. And so for Mansfield, you have to find a middle path between too much manliness and too little. So he says, our judgment on manliness has to take its bearing from the dangers it poses on both extremes. If you keep your eye only on one extreme, you back unawares into the other. The modern philosophers behind the project of rational control, the liberals, were mainly afraid of thumos and its incitements to idealism. They laid the ground for a dull bourgeois society lacking in both love and ambition. Nietzsche, in revulsion against this uninteresting landscape, released manliness from all restraint except the self restraint needed to strengthen oneself. I mean, this is like a classic wiggly Straussian move to say like Nietzsche is actually as one of the four horsemen of the modern apocalypse that he represents in his nihilism, at least in the, his description of what nihilism would be and why it would be rational under the conditions of sort of the last man, that Nietzsche is actually not just the philosopher of the Third Reich, but the philosopher of modern liberalism. Yes. I have a couple things to say about that, Sam. One of them is I read this line and actually laughed out loud because I couldn't wait to read it to you. Relatively early in the book, talking about Nietzsche, he's saying, as we mentioned earlier, I'm not going to talk about homosexuality. And he says, I'm leaving out also the science of neurophysiology and its relationship to the study of sex differences. And then he says this, quote, also, instead of Freud, I give you Nietzsche, a bargain for the reader. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I have a hard time disagreeing. I mean, there's like how many volumes of the Freud standard edition? It's like thousands and thousands of pages. Mm -hmm. I think you could read a couple of Nietzsche books and get more from it. <laughs> but the second point, and this is where it is kind of classic Straussian, it's kind of like what is lost when the kind of modern liberal doctrine of equality works its leveling ways. Like there's a, a certain kind of human type, which is the manly man, the kind of virtuous man, the gentleman, to, right. to use his language. He talks about gentlemen a lot. To give an example of the way he talks about gentlemen and why I, I think this is one way to read the book, he says, we've come to appreciation of the gentleman, the manly gentleman, what is he doing in the gender-neutral society? His chivalry is not only obsolete, but also dangerous. The protection he offers women comes at the price of recognizing his claim, usually unspoken, that certain things must be left to men. Most of the time, the gentleman conceals his superiority with chivalric irony. He pretends to defer to his inferiors, and he goes on from there. And he makes the claim, which is, I think, true but very interesting, that in most things, men and women are the same. But he kind of is pointing to these edge cases, right? Like if men and women are 90% the same, he's saying like, what happens in that 10%? The great, you know, warriors, generals, the manly men, the gentlemen who protect and act, because most of human life is everyday life. It's not the extreme situations that call for a certain kind of manliness or courage. So 
to me, one thing the Mansfield book does is kind of say, well, if the gender-neutral society makes us kind of unable to comprehend manliness, what important virtues and necessities for political life especially are we unable to see and comprehend then? I think that's what he's saying. I think where he ultimately says, like, okay, well, what do we do about this? Is that, like, privately, we should continue to acknowledge the difference between men and women. And then publicly, it's okay that we pretend like we don't know. Speaking of Straussians. I mean, he literally, he's just doing it. His exoteric teaching acknowledges his esoteric teaching, which is what you're not supposed to do necessarily. But yes, I think that's where he lands. And this is quite different from a lot of conservatives who would say like, no, our, our, our public policy must be oriented to the biological and fundamental differences between men and women, where he says our public policy can't be because we live in the modern. We live in the era after liberalism. And so we can't possibly, as a public matter, insist upon different roles and kind of women's inferiority and women's subservience to men. But in private, we all know <laughs> that that's actually how it works. It is very redolent of a prior era of conservatism, and perhaps especially a kind of like Straussian influence, neoconservatism, where you kind of make the Tocquevillian move of saying, like, the formal principle is equality, and that can't be yeah. transgressed. But what are the ways in which we can, without ever displacing that formal public ideal, supplement it with ways of life, whether it's associational life for Tocqueville, religious life, you know, things that are, are not necessarily public policy or, or, you know, wouldn't be passed in legislation, but are kind of the necessary supports of liberalism. It, it kind of gets to the point that liberalism is not self-sustaining, that it's reliant on kind of non-liberal or pre-liberal virtues and you know ways of life for its sustenance. Totally. Like there's a way of describing his problem with liberalism is like, does liberalism permit for virtue? And his sort of solution is like, kind of, hopefully. <laughs> but I think he's more ambivalent about the sort of American solution to the compromise between antiquity and, and modernity, between the liberals and Plato and Aristotle, because he's a East Coast Straussian and not necessarily a believer. Yeah. I mean, from Mansfield, you get the shrug about manliness. That's also the same shrug about the American founding, about modernity, about these topics that may be in the hands of a West Coast Straussian, especially America, right? All that ambivalence or ambiguity is basically gone. Yeah. And Josh Hawley is not a West Coast Straussian, but I mean, just his sort of assiduous avoidance of antiquity, of the Greeks in particular. He talks about Romans sometimes, because at least they were warlike and manly and imperial. To that point, Sam, it's very interesting that homosexuality, which is what you're referencing, really, when you mention the Greeks, is something, again, Mansfield says explicitly at the start of the book, he's not going to touch. And it's certainly not there in Holly's book, right? It's not even really mentioned, which is interesting to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's definitely insane. I mean, Straussians actually, like, don't always shy away from talking about the role of pederasty in these kinds of philosophical relationships that are the core of the materials that they work with. In this case, he makes the choice to avoid it. Well, but e even apart from that aspect of ancient Greek society, if you were to say, like, okay, we're going to talk about manhood and masculinity and manliness— Two men is like double the manliness yeah, it's more. <laughs> in some ways, right? Like there's a, a way in which like almost an exaggerated form of manliness can be a part of gay life sometimes. Totally. 
I think that's true, and I think it's actually just ridiculous to think that a uh, holistic appraisal of masculinity, especially if you're a Straussian who's invested in antiquity and, and thinks about what it means for <laughs> these philosophers to have been engaged in same-sex relationships, like to avoid homosexuality so assiduously. I think maybe we should talk about like what we make of masculinity before we close out. Because <laughs> I think our listeners might be interested. And also, you know, I was, I was thinking about how Betty Friedan in The Feminine Mystique, she describes the problem with no name. She's identifying it with women, suburban women in particular. And I feel like masculinity at this point is kind of like a problem with no name or it's being named all the time by our enemies, <laughs> by our opponents. And like, how do we name it? You know, I'd be interested to talk about that a little bit before we close out. Yeah, we definitely should, because we've been describing also more than criticizing in some ways. I mean, obviously, we've leveled criticisms of Holly and Mansfield throughout, and it should be yeah. clear we don't agree with them. But it does kind of pose the question of, well, what's the alternative then? They're at least making a bid right to answer these questions and i i don't mean to dodge anything constructively or normatively yet but i wanted to kind of describe my view of the situation to you and see what you make of it please which is that the question of what are men for how should men be and do and live of manliness of manhood etc everything kind of in that constellation i think it's a very difficult topic for the left in terms of like the rhetorical power and compellingness of addressing these issues, I feel like the right is at an advantage because they don't have any problem about saying, no, like that way of life is bad. You're a sinner. That person's a sinner, so on and so forth. And the left, I think, to our credit, we're more open to various expressions of gender, pursuit of sexuality, different living arrangements, different kinds of relationships, so on and so forth. Just a general tolerance in a sense that people should build the lives and live the lives they want to, which, you know, I agree with. But I think it makes it hard then. I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I feel kind of like hesitant to address or talk about in some ways because it just feels like it brings you into dangerous territory. And if a friend asks me questions about, you know, what he should do with his life, those wouldn't really necessarily map onto my political prescriptions or policy prescriptions or, or, you know, things I think are right for anyone else necessarily, but the friend I'm talking to. It's like only the conservatives really believe the personal is political. <laughs> <laughs> like in a sense, like what you're saying is that like the personal for you is not necessarily always political. Like that you would give advice to a friend who said like, I don't know how to live. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What should I do with my life? Help me, help me, help me. But that wouldn't be your sermon. That wouldn't be like the thing you would say, like, every man has to be like this. Yeah, just to be a little more concrete, like no one would tell your friend, so I think you should drop out of school, get addicted to drugs, blah, 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 right? But what follows from that is not like a punitive anti-drug policy, right? Or right. a stingier safety net, right? right. So when you, when you kind of say, well, it's actually better to live this way than that way, you kind of risk when you're talking about public policy and politics more broadly, suggesting that this way of life is better than that way of life implies some penalty or punitiveness or whatever at the level of policy. Well, I share those anxieties and also those views, basically. I, I do think that liberals and the left are at a kind of disadvantage when it comes to trying to talk about manhood, manliness, masculinity, men. Not exclusively for the reason that conservatives want to valorize 
aggression and domination and the sort of things that we don't like necessarily that are associated with masculinity, but also because even if you put aside any kind of biological aspects of masculinity, what manness, maleness consists of is a set of sort of inherited stories, myths, religious impulses, biblical stories, ways of behaving and obligations and duties that we inherit from tradition, from our civilization, right? Like nobody disagrees with that because even if you think that like all of that produces like a bad sort of person, like even if you are like fully bought into the idea that everything that maleness is, is toxic and bad and produces a sort of bad sort of person, we agree that it comes from culture, history, tradition, civilizational norms and stories. And the problem is that if that's what we think maleness is, just that stuff, then conservatives are just completely comfortable with engaging with that stuff and just saying, like, here's what a man is. It's this from the Bible. It's this from this kind of, like, mythopoetic bullshit from the 90s. Or this Brothers Grimm fairy tale about, like, Iron John, <laughs> or it's Thumos from antiquity. Men are these kinds of people. The kind of like satisfying story-making impulse that is what we all agree gender consists of or maleness consists of is something that the, that, that the conservatives are really comfortable with. And at this exact moment, liberals and leftists aren't really comfortable in that idiom. We don't really know how to tell a story about what men are that is about <laughs> tradition or something that came before or stories or myths or norms or yeah. virtues or whatever. We are more or less comfortable speaking in a therapeutic idiom, which is to say that like there's a toxic kind of way that men are socialized. And whether or not that's true, a therapeutic idiom is not the same thing as like, like a rite of passage or like a sort of a story that someone can tell that a young person who is a man or wants to be a man can tell themselves like this is how I should be this is what I am and then there's also a sort of like I was saying about the Richard Reeves book it's kind of like a technocratic idiom it's like here's what's wrong with men we're concerned about it and we should change policies to make it better easier for them yes like many of these kind of like male self-help gurus might be like democrats they might vote democrat but like the way that they talk about maleness is something that left liberals intellectuals politicians like don't do for all the reasons that we've already talked about. And so that means that we are just at an enormous disadvantage in trying to help young men if we accept that there is something going on with young men who don't really know how to be and how to behave and what their utility is, what they're, what they're supposed to do, why they're useful, what their obligations are to other people. We don't have that language. And both like right-wing politicians, right-wing intellectuals, right-wing writers, and the sort of like right-coded self-help gurus do. And, and one of the things about the, the right-wing self-help gurus, probably our listeners already picked up on this, but because that's an individualist message. It's a bootstrapping. Do this and you'll be better. And even like these kind of people like Richard Reeves, who are like, I'm really concerned actually about the plight of men, qua men, all of their analysis is about structural problems. So they're not really saying like, this is what you should do as an individual. Because liberalism, progressivism rejects the notion that like, you should prescribe one particular way of life to people. Yeah. And that even if you did, that that would solve people's problems because the structures are what actually 
proscribe their possibilities. Right. So if you're a young man kind of asking yourself existential questions. I don't think there's a single liberal or left voice that you can turn to for specifically that question. I mean, I may not be aware of it. Right. And so part of what we're saying is it's not even just that the liberals and the left, the broad center left, however you want to put it, are like at a disadvantage. It's more that it's it's sort of a vacuum that the right is speaking into. Right. And in that vacuum, again, you have people like Jordan Peterson saying, pull up your pants, make your bed. (laughs) It's actually funny, Sam. Harvey Mansfield, his advice to incoming freshmen to Harvard was to make their beds. Oh, wow, yeah. Jordan Peterson, avant lettre, right? When you were talking just a moment ago, I was thinking, the right is very good at connecting the little story to the big story, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like your life and how it fits into a cosmic, metaphysical, grand design. I think the left is better at listening and encouraging people's idiosyncratic little stories, which is a a real virtue, I think. That's not a, a negative comment, but then how that connects up to the kinds of bigger questions and arguments that situate us in the universe, right? This is something that Holly, his book really is very strong on. Like, it's one of the things that really comes through. Like, your life has meaning, right? I don't think that the comfort with speaking in that register has to, and in every instance, be allied with advocacy for traditionalism and constraint and the way things were. Do you know, I like it personally, like, you know, my mom's gay, is married to a woman. My sister's gay, married to a woman. They have two kids. Like, insofar as the palliative solution to the problem of men is like, we need to get rid of no-fault divorce and like turn the clock back on gay rights and like every male child needs a father. Like, my nephews are both boys they have two moms you know like like it's just it's it's actually physically revolting to me that these are the sorts of solutions that are being advocated by the only people talking about this that just makes me despair about the fact that like liberals and and leftists don't have a story to tell about how to socialize men how what what men are and what they should be i actually just think that's a problem i don't know (laughs) i hope i'm not sounding like a reactionary no i don't think you are but it's you know i just want to say it kind of connects to some other conversations we've had on the podcast about seeding say the language of community to the right right it's just a tough needle to thread rhetorically right and in a directly political sense You know, it's very hard to talk about those things without specific examples. I think what I would be interested to know from you is, like, why do you feel like a man? Who taught you to be a man? Like, what does it mean to be a man? If you feel some kind of comfort about being a man and then what that means about what you should do or something like that, how did you learn that? You know, my father was a very traditional man, Mm-hmm. When I grew up, I would say, like, I was a little afraid of him. Like, he lifted weights, <laughs> uh, was really buff, was kind of physically capable in a certain way. I spent a lot of time with him hunting and fishing and being outdoors and doing, like, stereotypically masculine yeah. things like that. But he also was a very thoughtful person. The worst thing we could do as kids growing up, me and my sister, would be, like, to talk to my mother in a certain way. Mm. And so, you know, my father was very caring and sensitive. So yeah. it was kind of like like the best version of a traditionally masculine dad. So I learned a lot from him. You know, being gay has complicated that in some ways. But it, it's also true that, like, being gay for me has never 
it's never entailed for me like being alienated from my gender, right? Or being a man or something like right, that. Right, right, right. And, you know, at a certain point, I just stopped caring about like doing what was stereotypical or not, uh, yeah, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. And that's just kind of a wind up to say, you know, like as I've gotten older, I'm 41 now. There's a line from Phil Chrisman's Hedgehog Review essay we referenced earlier that I've, I've really come to identify with. He writes, when I tried to nail down what masculinity is, what imperative gives rise to all this pain-seeking and stoicism, this showboating asceticism and loud silence, I come back to this. Masculinity is an abstract rage to protect. Mm. I've just noticed as I've gotten older, especially like to an age where I might otherwise have children, taking care of my friends, like having people over for dinner, providing for people in a certain way. It's not protecting exactly, but I will say too, like my sister, I'm very protective of. My nephew, right, like my sister would sometimes tell me something like, oh, some kid bit uh, my nephew at uh, <laughs> pre-K, whatever, and I get enraged. You're going to go Lydia Tar. Yes, yes, this, this, <laughs> this beautiful, sinless, uh, beautiful wonderful boy. kid, who would ever. So I would say like that kind of protectiveness is kind of what I go back to. And it is interesting because it does connect to some of what we've described so far. Totally, totally. Certain more traditional views of masculinity and, and manliness, I guess, because that, that abstract rage to protect implies maybe some kind of danger, right? Yeah. Or a situation that calls for assertiveness and courage or whatever, yeah. right? But so that's just to say, I admit that I've, I really was reared in a very traditional kind of context and I should say especially like reading the Holly book was interesting for me because in my own family and in the church I was raised in when I was young Sunday morning church services women it was very frowned upon if they wore pants mm -hmm. it was very much the man is the head of the house the woman is the help meet and even my mom if I called her up right now she would say all this you know yeah 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 so my own trajectory has been interesting in this area because raised in a very traditional way being gay has complicated that and now I'm, I'm on the left all my commitments are toward liberation and solidarity and all that but if I had to talk about you know what being a man means for me I do think it's that abstract rage to protect that Phil identifies I really identify with that line well and I think that your friends myself included see and benefit from that like it's such a moving thing about you you have this like real sensitivity i feel like to like what's going on with your friends like sometimes you'll send me a text message that's like are you doing all right <laughs> and it, there's never been a situation where you sent me one of those text messages where it was not the case that i was like no no not really like i may or may not <laughs> want to talk about it but your concern does have yeah that kind of sensitivity and also vigilance about protecting those of us who you love and who you've sort of taken into your care. It's interesting though, Sam, because for me, a lot of that comes from going through certain periods of my life where I felt very alone and very kind of uncared for. And it's kind of given me an instinct to just do certain things and ask certain things. <laughs> you know, yeah. there were periods of my life where I really wish someone had just asked me certain questions or, or done certain things for me. I mean, and I, I also have learned that from you a little bit, like, I'm sure it annoys you sometimes. I'm like, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> You're usually right, too. It's annoying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I actually think this is a useful kind of example because this isn't actually what's being taught by 
Josh Hawley or most of this sort of masculinity discourse. We're not talking about like stoicism and endurance and duties and burdens. Those things can be important. And I think there can be an idiom for the left to talk about like what virtuous manhood is that involves burdens and duties. But we're talking about something different, which is like vulnerability. (laughs) And like in some ways kind of piercing the veneer of stoicism in our friends every once in a while. Uh-huh. Because both of us said, like, it's annoying because it feels like some kind of violation. But, like, in the absence of it, maybe you suffer alone and you don't have to. This is where we get to, like, there are true things about the kind of ways in which men are being socialized which aren't necessarily conducive to health and kindness and solidarity and, and our best instincts. One of the interesting things to me is like, we are very publicly friends. You know, we've had episodes like our episode on depression, right? Where yeah. we talk about our feelings, so to speak, right? Yeah, be yeah, uh, yeah. be in, t- in touch with our feelings and whatnot. And for that reason, more than one person has asked me like if we're dating or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's just very funny that uh, the very things we're having a conversation about the kind of parts of it that we identify with have like elicited those kind of comments because we're men who say we care about each other and talk about our feelings. Totally. I mean, what can you say except for that that's tragic? I mean, people talk about the sort of like friendlessness crisis of men and because I don't experience it and because I rely on my friends so much, including you, it's one of the things that just kind of hits me the most strongly. I'm like, oh God, there really is something wrong. What a disaster. That like the fact that we love each other and enjoy each other's company so much and are so fascinated by each other's minds, the only kind of way one could understand that is in like a kind of romance situation. That's just like, oh man, what a bummer. You should have that with your friends. You should feel that way about your friends. The friend discourse is really interesting because every once in a while, someone on social media will say, like, how do you make friends in your 30s? And it's just funny because I've made a lot of friends in my 30s. Yeah, yeah. Some of my closest friends. But I will admit that gay culture is a culture of friendship in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gays have it so easy. (laughs) And uh, some of this, the kind of problems of male friendship, especially from the right, that gets blamed on the gays because it was like when there was no such thing as being publicly gay, like when it wasn't tolerated, when it wasn't approved of by society and like gay guys were in the closet, it was like two men sitting at a restaurant. No one would assume they were dating or, you know, something like that. It was like the rigid boundaries actually supported friendship. Of course, the rejoinder to this is like, well, if everyone just chilled out, it wouldn't matter either way, (laughs) right? But it is interesting that open, publicly tolerated and approved of homosexuality has injured the prospects for male friendship. That's what they say. That's what they say, yes. But it's also just because the thing is that male friendship always rests on some amount of (laughs) homoeroticism. Whatever you mean by being drawn to someone rather than someone else. Boys who turn out to be straight masturbate in the same room when they're little kids. You know, like this just happens. (laughs) And so it's deeply perverse to blame gays and gay visibility for them not being comfortable with that anymore. Uh But I understand what you're saying, that because there was a sort of alibi for the homoerotic elements of heterosexual, homosocial relationships, 
that alibi is gone. Like, oh, so sorry. <laughs> and I kind of think that's part of why gay people aren't really a topic for Holly or Mansfield. They can't deal with it. It's actually not because it's such a small addendum. It's actually because it's a huge part of, I think, their critique itself. To kind of name it and describe it would be something that takes more time and, and pages than they might be willing to give it. I think that's right. I think the problem is that it is both the exception that proves the rule and the thing that undermines their whole argument. Like in a way, it's kind of just, it's just impossible reality to metabolize given their way of thinking about things. Do you know what I mean? Like I just kind of feel like, of course men are attracted to men in ways that have to do with desire. I mean, actually, East Coast Straussians are comfortable with saying that. Like Alan Bloom, his esoteric teaching, not exclusively esoteric teaching about pedagogy is about that, right? And that is also at the core of what the kind of pedagogical emphasis of Straussians is about. I don't know. <laughs> I think the reason they don't want to talk about it is because it's a challenge to everything else they've said, not just because it's something they would have to write about too much. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, Sam. Well, since I've been blathering on about my childhood, about being gay, all that, I did want to ask you a question sort of about your experience of being a man as a straight man and maybe some of the influences on you, but also your trajectory and, and some of your thinking about it. Such an interesting specimen, a straight man. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I, I, I feel that it's only fair that I sort of talk about my dad a little bit too. My dad actually modeled a form of masculinity that I'm very grateful for that helped me through a lot of trouble, which is that he's really not a super manly man. He's very like kind, soft, sentimental, and brilliant intellectual. He's a labor lawyer. He has dedicated himself to the cause of <laughs> collective bargaining and labor against management, but also his sort of way of performing himself. It gave me a lot of space I saw friends' fathers and coaches and teachers and stuff who were way more traditionally masculine, and sometimes I felt attracted to that, and sometimes I felt oppressed by that expectation. But my dad is just not like that, and nonetheless a man, and I'm forever grateful that he modeled a kind of masculinity that is competent and convicted and thoughtful and kind, which in many ways I didn't see amongst other men there's ways in which like when that's your kind of father, then you kind of like feel like an impulse to rebel against that. <laughs> and I think there was some of, some of that, some of that in me, but uh, I never stopped being grateful that like he did model kind of like what it means to be a man that had all of that kind of like, you should be kind, you should accept duties. You should live for something more than yourself without sort of being tied to a masculinity that I think for me when I was young and, and would be now a, a straitjacket, an uncomfortable fit. And all that being said, I think the reason that I was excited to do this episode is because I actually still think being a man is a little bit like difficult to know what, what it is, what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I think when you say that, like people imagine that you're sort of comparing it to what how difficult it is to be a woman or how difficult it is to be black or gay or trans or whatever but no it's just another thing you know what i mean yeah you have to perform maleness we've referenced phil chrisman's essay a few times during this conversation and one of the parts of it i really like it's close to the start he says what is it like to be a cisgendered heterosexual man a friend a trans man ass on facebook 
what is it like to feel at home in your body? Right. The only answer I can come up with is that I never feel at home in my body. Right. I live out my masculinity most often as a perverse avoidance of comfort. The refusal of good clothes, moisturizer, painkillers, hard physical training, pursued for its own sake and not because I enjoy it. A sense that there's a set amount of physical pain or self-imposed discipline that I owe the universe. Right. That's such a fascinating comment. And again, he's not saying he has it worse than anyone else. No, Far no. from it. But, but just that, that being a man for him is not like a simple, uncomplicated, existentially boring thing. Right. There's like a joke for heterosexual men where like... At some point, they have a girlfriend who gives them a, a skincare routine. <laughs> and that's true of me. Like, my face hurt all the time. And then my girlfriend was like, why don't you put this on your face? That's so funny, Sam. There have been various points in our friendship where I was like this close to going to Kiehl's and buying you a nice little set of moisturizers and whatnot. I know. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> I mean, I think Phil's exactly right. And look, obviously, like none of us. I hope not the listeners and neither of us are particularly invested in like a sort of hierarchy of pain or trauma or oppression. It's just not interesting. But I think that a maximally kind of capacious sense of care and concern for those around us would acknowledge what Phil is describing. I think I feel less kind of constrained by masculinity than Phil does. I don't necessarily feel like I, I need to feel pain in order to be a man. But I totally understand what he means. And I think it doesn't have to be gendered, but it is true that I feel like I'm fulfilling some kind of unstated obligation and duty when I'm doing tasks. Being useful in some way. Being useful, yeah. I mean, and it's so silly. It's so pathetic and funny. But it's like I worked at a hardware store when I was in high school all four years. I know like a little bit more about how to fix things than like all the effete <laughs> intellectuals that are our friends and then certainly than my partner, Hannah. I can impress these people so much by being like, okay, I know how to fix this. I can fix your toilet. I can fix your door. I can put things on the wall. I know how to deal with these problems. And that does satisfy something like stupid, stupid, stupid and true about me. Well, it's so funny because that also is like if you read Lash or someone like Patrick Deneen, the critique of, well, the PMC, right? The white collar, urban, bourgeois, keyboard class is that we don't know how to do any of that stuff, right? We can't right. change a tire. We can't build this. We can't fix that. Yeah. So it's it, these things are kind of bound up and you get that too in Holly's book. Yeah. Like uh, a critique of the new class, the ruling class. It's essentially it's often framed as a critique of the lack of masculinity there. No, you're totally right. The funny thing is that like my dad grew up in Manhattan with a super and he would always say like I don't know how to fix anything. <laughs> and I worked at a hardware store and learned how to do that kind of stuff in some ways because I was like, I actually do want to know how to do those kinds of things. Well, Sam, one of the things, maybe this will be the last question we grapple with, but it's something that I feel like hovers over this debate, which is, is there anything we can essentially boil down being a man, manliness, manhood, too. Is there kind of like a manly minimum? You know, the right is speaking into this vacuum. What kind of 
alternative might the left offer, is there something particular about men that needs to be addressed in particular ways? So I have an instinctive answer and then a kind of less instinctive answer. The less instinctive answer is like, I just think that the left and liberals probably just need to be more comfortable about talking to men about the values that they would wish that they would uphold in their lives. You know, like, I think you've pointed out multiple times in this conversation that there is a real problem, which is that, like, if we are liberals in a certain way, then we can't tell people how to live their lives. And a lot of the advances that we would celebrate for the progressive left have to do with ceasing to accept that the state or the church or somebody else can tell people how to live their lives. I mean, the world where my mother's life or my sister's life is unacceptable, or your life is unacceptable, is a bad world. I don't want to live in that world. So, so, uh-huh. we, so as, a, as a sort of first principle, we can't tell people how to live. But we ought to figure out how to be comfortable sort of talking about what men could be and should be in a kind of capacious way, kind of like you could be this, you could be this, but you should be (laughs) something like this. You know, I don't know. It's difficult, but I don't think that we should fail to answer the question that a lot of young men are asking about how should I be. So that's my kind of careful answer. My less careful answer is that I actually do think that there are parts of the story conservatives are telling about what men are and how they should be and parts that they're ignoring that we could adopt. Like the left is very uncomfortable with sort of universal virtues. But there is one that we all agree, it's solidarity. And then the question would be like, what kind of men are attracted to or susceptible to or feel drawn to the obligations of solidarity? How should we advise someone to live their lives or think about their obligations to other people if the goal is solidarity, if that's our, if that's our virtue. And then I think you can tell men certain things like (laughs) you should be humble and you should listen to other people and that you shouldn't be exclusively apologetic (laughs) about who you are. I had a conversation in anticipation of doing this episode with a friend of mine and we were talking about like, how did we figure out how to be men on the left without just feeling bad about ourselves. And what he said was like, well, I think at some point as a young person, between the time where I started being like, oh, it's bad to be a man, and the time where I was later on being like, well, it's okay to be a man, I'm this kind of man, is that he spent a lot of time with friends who were queer. And (laughs) I think the thing about queer communities is that they are organized around like, that you must have a way of affirming yourself. You must have a way of sort of saying, like, who I am is all right. Yeah. And even yeah. if you're a cis het guy, but you're spending a lot of time with people who that's like the sort of central principle of how you should be, you learn something from that. You have to figure out how to feel like who I am is all right. <laughs> I owe certain things to people around me and I don't hate myself. Well, that sounds all right to me. If you're a listener who's a young man who's like, oh, what the fuck am I supposed to do as a man? It makes sense to be asking that question. There are virtuous things about the impulses that you have. (laughs) The Holly typology of of the warrior or something is, I think we've kind of been alluding to, there's like the militaristic, violent version of that. But there's also like 
the Phil Chrisman protectiveness, right? Yeah. That is, it's less of an aggressive impulse, right, than a caring one. Yeah. It's tough, though, because Phil points this out about Mansfield, where he says, honor is an asserted claim to protect someone, and the claim to protect is a claim to rule. How can I protect you properly if I can't tell you what to do? And I don't think we have an answer to that. There is something about the idea of trying to protect that kind of slips into the aspiration to rule. Yes, and I think that's especially clear in Harvey Mansfield's book. He sometimes pretty directly kind of connects up those questions. And of course, he kind of maneuvers around them in interesting ways. But being the Straussian writer that he is, I felt like the times where he surfaced that were super interesting. And, and so these questions of, you know, what is a man, masculinity, etc., they really do connect up to some of the most enduring questions of political theory and political philosophy, right? Totally. Like these, these very questions of who rules, what ruling consists of, what the nature of rule is. But those are questions for another day. Yeah, totally. When we decided to do this episode and told our producer Jesse about it, I told him that we're going to tell listeners how to be men. And then I said, what we're going to tell them is to read lots of books, be as nice to your partner as you can, occasionally make dinner, and call your friends on the telephone. Yes. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I mean, some of the best advice I've ever been given is from the late, great John Prine. Blow up your TV, throw away your paper, <laughs> go to the country, build you a home, plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, try and find Jesus on your own. All right. Combine those two things and you're living the Know Your Enemy mindset. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Sam. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.